Book Four, Chapter Thirty of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Four, Chapter Thirty. But the problem of these two lives was not solved by a burst of feeling. Without that determining impulse of love and pity in Catherine's heart, the salvation of an exquisite bond might indeed have been impossible. But in spite of it, the laws of character had still to work themselves inexorably out on either side. The whole gist of the matter for Ellesmere lay really in this question. Hidden in Catherine's nature, was there, or was there not, the true stuff of fanaticism? Madame Guillon left her infant children to the mercies of chance, while she followed the voice of God to the holy war with heresy. Under similar conditions, Catherine Ellesmere might have planned the same. Could she ever have carried it out? And yet the question is still ill-stated. For the influences of our modern time on religious action are so blunting and dulling, because in truth the religious motive itself is being constantly modified, whether the religious person knows it or not. Is it possible now for a good woman with a heart, in Catherine Ellesmere's position, to maintain herself against love and all those subtle forces to which such a change as Ellesmere's opens the house doors, without either hardening or greatly yielding? Let Catherine's further story give some sort of an answer. Poor soul! As they sat together in the study, after he had brought her home, Robert, with averted eyes, went through the plans he had already thought into shape. Catherine listened, saying almost nothing. But never, never had she loved this life of theirs so well as now that she was called on, at barely a week's notice, to give it up for ever. For Robert's scheme, in which her reason fully acquiesced, was to keep to their plan of going to Switzerland, he having first, of course, settled all things with the bishop, and having placed his living in the hands of Mowbray Ellesmere. When they left the rectory, in a week or ten days' time, he proposed, in fact, his voice almost inaudible as he did so, that Catherine should leave it for good. "'Everybody had better suppose,' he said, choking, "'that we are coming back. Of course we need say nothing. Our Miss Dead will be here for next week, certainly.' Then afterwards I can come down and manage everything. I shall get it over in a day, if I can, and see nobody. I cannot say good-bye, nor can you. "'And next Sunday, Robert?' she asked him after a pause. "'I shall write to Armistead this afternoon and ask him, if he possibly can, to come to-morrow afternoon instead of Monday, and take the service.' Catherine's hands clasped each other still more closely. So then she had heard her husband's voice for the last time in the public ministry of the church, in prayer, in exhortation, in benediction. One of the most sacred traditions of her life was struck from her at a blow. It was long before either of them spoke again. Then she ventured another question. "'And have you any idea of what we shall do next, Robert, of, of our future?' "'Shall we try London for a little?' he answered in a queer, strained voice leaning against the window, and looking out that he might not see her. "'I should find work among the poor. So would you. And I could go on with my book. And your mother and sister will probably be there part of the winter.' She acquiesced silently. How mean and shrunken a future it seemed to them both, beside the wide and honourable range of his clergyman's life, as he and she had developed it. But she did not dwell long on that. Her thoughts were suddenly invaded by the memory of a cottage tragedy in which she had recently taken a prominent part. A girl, a child of fifteen, from one of the crowded Mile End hovels, had gone at Christmas to a distant farm as servant, 
and come back a month ago ruined, the victim of an outrage over which Ellesmere had ground his teeth in fierce and helpless anger. Catherine had found her a shelter and was to see her through her trouble. The girl, a frail, half-witted creature who could find no words even to bewail herself, clinging to her to the while with the dumbest, pitifulest tenacity. How could she leave that girl? It was as if all the fibres of life were being violently wrenched from all their natural connections. Robert, she cried at last with a start, have you forgotten the Institute to-morrow? No, no, he said with the saddest smile. No, I had not forgotten it. Don't go, Catherine, don't go. I must. But why should you go through it? But there are all those flags and wreaths, she said, getting up in pained bewilderment. I must go and look after them. He caught her in his arms. Oh, my wife, my wife, forgive me. It was a groan of misery. She put up her hands and pressed his hair back from his temples. "'I love you, Robert,' she said simply, her face colourless but perfectly calm. Half an hour later, after he worked through some letters, he went into the workroom and found her surrounded with flags and a vast litter of paper roses and evergreens which she and the new agent's daughters who had come up to help her were putting together for the decorations of the morrow. Mary was tottering from chair to chair in high glee, a big pink rose stuck in the belt of her pinafore. His pale wife, trying to smile and talk as usual, her lap full of evergreens, and her politeness exercised by the chatter of the two Miss Batesons, seemed to Robert one of the most pitiful spectacles he had ever seen. He fled from it out into the village, driven by a restless longing for change and movement. Here he found a large gathering round the new institute. There were carpenters at work on a triumphal arch in front, and close by an admiring circle of children and old men, huddling in the shade of a great chestnut. Ellesmere spent an hour in the building, helping and superintending, stabbed every now and then by the unsuspecting friendliness of those about him, or worried by their blunt comments on his looks. He could not bear more than a glance into the new rooms apportioned to the naturalist club. There, against the wall, stood the new glass cases he had wrung out of the square, with various new collections lying near, ready to be arranged and unpacked when time allowed. The old collection stood out bravely in the added space and light. The walls were hung here and there with a wonderful set of geographical pictures he carried off from a London exhibition, and fed his boys on for weeks. The floors were freshly matted. The new pine fittings gave out their pleasant, cleanly scent. The white paint of doors and windows shone in the August sun. The building had been given by the squire. The fittings and furniture had been many of his providing. What uses he had planned for it all? Only to see the fruits of two years' efforts out of doors, and personal frugality at home, handed over to some possibly unsympathetic stranger. The heart beat painfully against the iron bars of fate rebelling against the power of a mental process so to affect a man's whole practical and social life. He went out at last, by the back of the Institute, where a little bit of garden, spoilt with building materials, led down to a lane. At the end of the garden, beside the untidy gap in the hedge made by the builders' carts, he saw a man standing, who turned away down the lane, however, as soon as the rector's figure emerged into view. Robert had recognised the slouching gait and unwieldy form of Henslow. There were at this moment all kinds of gruesome stories afloat in the village about the ex-agent. 
it was said that he was breaking up fast. It was known that he was extensively in debt, and the village shopkeepers already held an agitated meeting or two to decide upon the best mode of getting their money out of him, and upon a joint plan of cautious action towards his custom in future. The man, indeed, was sinking deeper and deeper into a pit of sordid misery, maintaining all the while a snarling, exasperating front to the world, which was rapidly converting the careless, half-malicious pity wherewith the village had till now surveyed his fall, into that more active species of baiting, which the human animal is never very loath to try upon the limping specimens of his race. Angelo stopped and turned as he heard the steps behind him. Six months' self-murdering had left ghastly traces. He was many degrees nearer the brute than he had ever been when Robert made his ineffectual visit. But at this actual moment Robert's practised eye, for every English parish clergyman becomes dismally expert in the pathology of drunkenness, saw that there was no fight in him. He was in one of the drunkard's periods of collapse, shivering, flabby, starting at every sound, a misery to himself and a spectacle to others. "'Mr. Henslow,' cried Robert, still pursuing him, "'may I speak to you a moment?' The ex-agent turned, his prominent bloodshot eyes glowering at the speaker. But he had to catch at his stick for support, or at the nervous shock of Robert's summons his legs would have given way under him. Robert came up with him, and stood a second, fronting the evil silence of the other, his boyish face deeply flushed. Perhaps the grotesqueness of that former scene was in his mind. Moreover, the vestry meetings had furnished Henslow with periodical opportunities for venting his gall on the rector, and they had never been neglected. But he plunged on boldly. "'I'm going away next week, Mr. Henslow. I shall be going away some considerable time. Before I go, I should like to ask you whether you do not think the feud between us had better cease. Why would you persist in making an enemy of me? If I did you an injury, it was neither wittingly nor willingly. I know you have been ill, and I gather that—' that you are in trouble. If I could stand between you and further mischief, I would, most gladly. If help or, or, or money—' He paused. He shrewdly suspected, indeed, from the reports that reached him, that Henslow was on the brink of bankruptcy. The rector had spoken with the utmost diffidence and delicacy, but Henslow found energy in return for an outburst of quavering animosity, from which, however, physical weakness had extracted all its sting. "'I thank you to make your canting offers to someone else, Mr. Ellesmere. "'When I want your advice, I'll ask for it. Good day to you.' And he turned away with as much of an attempt at dignity as his shaking limbs would allow of. "'Listen, Mr. Henslow,' said Robert firmly, walking beside him, "'you know, I know, that if this goes on, in a year's time you will be in your grave, "'and your poor wife and children struggling to keep themselves from the workhouse. "'You may think that I have no right to preach to you,' that you are the older man, that it is an intrusion. But what is the good of blinking facts that you must know all the world knows? Come now, Mr. Henslow, let us behave for a moment as though this were our last meeting. Who knows? The chances of life are many. Lay down your grudge against me, and let me speak to you as one struggling human being to another. The fact that you have, as you say, become less prosperous, in some sort through me, seems to give me a right to make it a duty for me, if you will, to help you if I can. Let me send a good doctor to see you. Let me employ you as a last chance to put yourself into his hands and to obey him and your wife, and let me—' The rector hesitated. 
let me make things pecuniarily easier for Mrs. Henslow, till you pulled yourself out of the hole in which, by common report at least, you are now. Henslow stared at him, divided between anger caused by the sore stirring of his old self-importance, and a tumultuous flood of self-pity, roused irresistibly in him by Robert's piercing frankness, and aided by his own more or less maudlin condition. The latter sensation quickly undermined the former. He turned his back on the rector, and leant over the railings of the lane, shaken by something it is hardly worth while to dignify by the name of emotion. Robert stood by, a pale embodiment of mingled judgment and compassion. He gave the man a few moments to recover himself, and then, as Henslow turned round again, he silently and appealingly held out his hand, the hand of the good man, which it was an honour to such as Henslow to touch. Constrained by the moral force radiating from his look, the other took it with a kind of helpless sullenness. Then, seizing at once on the slight concession, with that complete lack of inconvenient self-consciousness, or hindering indecision, which was one of the chief causes of his effect on men and women, Robert began to sound the broken, repulsive creature as to his affairs. Bit by bit, compelled by a will and nervous strength far superior to his own, Henslow was led into abrupt and blurted confidences which surprised no one so much as himself. Robert's quick sense possessed itself of point after point, seeing presently ways of escape and relief which the besotted brain beside him had been quite incapable of devising for itself. They walked on into the open country, and what with the discipline of the rector's presence, the sobering effect wrought by the shock to pride and habit, and the unwonted brain exercise of the conversation, the demon in Henslow had been for the moment most strangely tamed after half an hour's talk. Actually, some reminiscences of his old ways of speech and thought, the ways of the once prosperous and self-reliant man of business, had reappeared in him before the end of it, called out by the subtle influence of a manner which always attracted to the surface whatever decent element there might be left in a man, and then instantly gave it a recognition which was more redeeming than either counsel or denunciation. By the time they parted, Robert had arranged with his old enemy that he should become his surety with a rich cousin in Churton, who, always supposing there were no risk in the matter, and that benevolence ran on all fours with security of investment, was prepared to shield the credit of the family by the advance of a sufficient sum of money to rescue the ex-agent from his most pressing difficulties. He had also wrung from him the promise to see a specialist in London, Robert writing that evening to make the appointment. How had it been done? Neither Robert nor Henslow ever quite knew. Henslow walked home in a bewilderment which for once had nothing to do with brandy, but was simply the result of a moral shock acting on what was still human in the man's debased consciousness, just as electricity acts on the bodily frame. Robert, on the other hand, saw him depart with a singular lightning of mood. What he seemed to have achieved might turn out to be the merest moonshine. At any rate, the incident had appeased in him a kind of spiritual hunger, the hunger to escape a while from that incessant process of destructive analysis with which the mind was still beset, into some use of energy, more positive, human, and beneficent. The following day was one long trial of endurance for Ellesmere and for Catherine. She pleaded to go, promising quietly to keep out of his sight, and they started together, a miserable pair. 
crowds, heat, decorations, the grandees on the platform, and conspicuous among them the squire's slouching frame and striking head, side by side with a white and radiant Lady Helen. The outer success, the inner revolt and pain, and the constant seeking of his truant eyes for a face that hid itself as much as possible in dark corners, but was in truth the one thing sharply present to him. These were the sort of impressions that remained with Ellesmere afterwards of this last meeting with his people. He had made a speech, of which he never could remember a word. As he sat down there had been a slight flutter of surprise in the sympathetic looks of those about him, as though the turn of it had been somewhat unexpected and disproportionate to the occasion. Had he betrayed himself in any way? He looked for Catherine, but she was nowhere to be seen. Only in his search he caught the squire's ironical glance, and wondered, with quick shame, what sort of nonsense he had been talking. Then a neighbouring clergyman, who had been his warm supporter and admirer from the beginning, sprang up and made a rambling panegyric on him and on his work, which Ellesmere writhed under. His work! Absurdity! What could be done in two years? He saw it all as the merest nothing, a ragged beginning which might do more harm than good. But the cheering was incessant, the popular feeling intense. There was old Milsom waving a feeble arm, John Allwood, gaunt but radiant, Mary Charland, white still as the ribbons on her bonnet, egging on her flushed and cheering husband, and the club boys grinning and shouting, partly for love of Ellesmere, mostly because to the young human animal mere noise is heaven. In front was an old hedger and ditcher, who came round the parish periodically, and never failed to take Ellesmere's opinion as to a bit of property he and two other brothers as ancient as himself had been quarrelling over for twenty years, and were likely to go on quarrelling over, till all three litigants had closed their eyes on a mortal scene which had afforded them on the whole vast entertainment, though little pelf. Next him was a bowed and twisted old tramp who had been shepherd in the districts in his youth, had then gone through the Crimea and the mutiny, and was now living among the commons, welcome to feed here and sleep there for the sake of his stories and his queer, innocuous wit. Robert had had many a gay, argumentative walk with him, and he and his companion had tramped miles to see the function, to rattle their sticks on the floor in Ellesmere's honour, and satiate their curious gaze on the squire. When all was over, Ellesmere, with his wife on his arm, mounted the hill to the rectory, leaving the green behind them still crowded with folk. Once inside the shelter of their own trees, Husband and wife turned instinctively and caught each other's hands. A low groan broke from Ellesmere's lips. Catherine looked at him one moment, then fell weeping on his breast. The first chapter of their common life was closed. One thing more, however, of a private nature remained for Ellesmere to do. Late in the afternoon he walked over to the hall. He found the squire in the inner library among his German books, his pipe in his mouth, his old smoking-coat and slippers bearing witness to the rapidity and joy with which he had shut the world out again after the futilities of the morning. His mood was more accessible than Ellesmere had yet found it since his return. "'Well, have you done with all those tomfooleries, Ellesmere? Precious elegant speech you made. When I see you and people like you throwing yourselves at the heads of the people, I always think of Skellinger's remark about the Basques. They say they understand one another. I don't believe a word of it. 
All that the lower class wants, to understand, at any rate, is the shortest way to the pockets of you and me. All that you and I need understand, according to me, is how to keep them off. There you have the sum and substance of my political philosophy.' "'You remind me,' said Robert dryly, sitting down on one of the library stools, "'of some of those sentiments you expressed so forcibly on the first evening of our acquaintance.' The squire received the shaft with equanimity. "'I was not amiable, I remember, on that occasion,' he said coolly, his thin old man's fingers moving the while among the shelves of books, nor on several subsequent ones. I'd been made a fool of, and you were not particularly adroit. But of course you won't acknowledge it. Whoever yet got a parson to confess himself?' "'Strangely enough, Mr. Wendover,' said Robert, fixing him with a pair of deliberate, feverish eyes, I am here at this moment for that very purpose. Go on, said the squire, turning, however, to meet the rector's look, his gold spectacles falling forward over his long hooked nose, his attitude one of sudden attention. Go on. All his grievances against Ellesmere returned to him. He stood aggressively waiting. Robert paused a moment, and then said abruptly, Perhaps even you will agree, Mr. Wendover, that I had some reason for sentiment this morning. Unless I read the lessons to-morrow, which is possible, to-day has been my last public appearance as a rector of this parish. The squire looked at him, dumbfounded. "'And your reasons?' he said, with quick imperativeness. Robert gave them. He admitted, as plainly and bluntly as he had done to Gray, the squire's own part in the matter. But here a note of antagonism almost of defiance, crept even to his confession of wide and illimitable defeat. He was there, so to speak, to hand over his sword. But to the squire his surrender had all the pride of victory. "'Why should you give up your living?' asked the squire, after several minutes' complete silence. He too had sat down, and was now bending forward, his sharp, small eyes peering at his companion. "'Simply because I prefer to feel myself an honest man.' However, I have not acted without advice. Gray, of St. Anselm's, you know him, of course, was a very close personal friend of mine at Oxford. I have been to see him, and we agreed it was the only thing to do. No, Gray, exclaimed the squire with a movement of impatience. Gray, of course, wanted you to set up a church of your own, or to join his. He's like all idealists. He has the usual foolish contempt for the compromise of institutions. Not at all, said Robert calmly. You are mistaken. He has the most sacred respect for institutions. He only thinks it well, and I agree with him, that with regard to a man's public profession and practice, he should recognise that two and two makes four. It was clear to him, from the squire's tone and manner, that Mr. Wendover's instincts on the point were very much what he had expected, the instincts of the philosophical man of the world, who scorns the notion of taking popular belief seriously, whether for protest or for sympathy but he was too weary to argue. The squire, however, rose hastily, and began to walk up and down in a gathering storm of irritation. The triumph gained for his own side, the tribute to his life's work, were at the moment absolutely indifferent to him. They were effaced by something else much harder to analyse. Whatever it was, it drove him to throw himself upon Robert's position with a perverse, bewildering bitterness. "'Why should you break up your life in this wanton way?' Who in God's name is injured if you keep your living? 
It is the business of the thinker and the scholar to clear his mind of cobwebs. Granted, you have done it. But it is also the business of the practical man to live. If I had your altruist, emotional temperament, I should not hesitate for a moment. I should regard the historical expressions of an external tendency in men as wholly indifferent to me. If I understand you right, you have flung away the sanctions of orthodoxy. There is no other in the way. Treat words as they deserve. You—and the speaker laid an emphasis on the pronoun, which for the life of me he could not help making sarcastic—you will always have gospel enough to preach. I cannot, Robert repeated quietly, unmoved by the taunt, if it was one. I am in a different stage, I imagine, from you. Words, that is to say, the specific Christian formulae, may be indifferent to you, though a month or two ago I should hardly have guessed it. They are just now anything but indifferent to me." The squire's brow grew darker. He took up the argument again, more pugnaciously than ever. It was the strangest attempt ever made to jibe and flout a wandering shepherd back into the fold. Robert's resentment was roused at last. The squire's temper seemed to him totally inexplicable, his arguments contradictory, the conversation useless and irritating. He got up to take his leave. "'What are you about to do, Ellesmere?' the squire wound up with saturnine emphasis. "'Is a piece of cowardice. You will live bitterly to regret the haste and the unreason of it.' "'There has been no haste,' exclaimed Robert, in the low tone of passionate emotion. "'I have not rooted up the most sacred growths of life as a careless child devastates its garden. There are some things which a man only does.' because he must." There was a pause. Robert held out his hand. The squire would hardly touch it. Outwardly his mood was one of the strangest eccentricity and anger, and as to what was beneath it, Ellsmere's quick divination was dulled by worry and fatigue. It only served him so far that at the door he turned back, hat in hand, and said, looking lingeringly the while at the solitary sombre figure, of the great library, with all its suggestive and exquisite detail. "'If Bundy is fine, squire, will you walk?' The squire made no reply except by another question. "'Do you still keep to your swish plans for next week?' he asked sharply. "'Certainly. The plan, as it happens, is a godsend. But there,' said Robert, with a sigh, "'let me explain the details of this dismal business to you on Monday. I have hardly the courage for it now.' The curtain dropped behind him. Mr. Wendover stood a moment, looking after him, then, with some vehement expletive or other, walked up to his writing-table, drew some folios that were lying on it towards him, with hasty, maladroit movements which sent his papers flying over the floor, and plunged doggedly into work. He and Mrs. Darcy dined alone. After dinner the squire leant against the mantelpiece, sipping his coffee more gloomily silent than even his sister had seen him for weeks. And as always happened when he became more difficult and morose, she became more childish. She was now wholly absorbed with a little electric toy she had just bought for Mary Ellesmere, a number of infinitesimal little figures dancing fantastically under the stimulus of an electric current generated by the simplest means. She hung over it absorbed, calling to her brother every now and then, as though by sheer perversity, to come and look whenever the pink or the blue danseurs executed a more surprising somersault than usual. 
he took not the smallest spoken notice of her, though his eyes followed her contemptuously as she moved from window to window with her toy in pursuit of the fading light. "'Her Roger,' she called presently, still throwing herself to this side and that to catch new views of her pith puppets, "'I've got something to show you. You must admire them. You shall. I've been drawing them all day, and they are nearly done. You remember what I told you once about my imps? I've seen them all my life, since I was a child in France with Papa, and I've never been able to draw them till the last few weeks. They're such dears, such darlings. Everyone will know them when he sees them. There is the Chinese imp, the low, smirking creature, you know, that sits on the edge of your cup of tea. There is the flippity-floppity creature that flies out at you when you open a drawer. There is the twisty-twirly person that sits cheering on the edge of your hat when it blows away from you. And, her voice dropped, that ugly, ugly thing I always see waiting for me on the top of a gate. They've teased me all my life, and now at last I've drawn them. If they were to take offence to-morrow I should have them, the beauties all safe. She came towards him, her bizarre little figure swaying from side to side, her eyes glittering, her restless hands pulling at the lace round her blanched head and face. The squire, his hands behind him, looked at her frowning, an involuntary horror dawning on his dark countenance, turned abruptly, and left the room. Mr. Wendover worked till midnight. Then, tired out, he turned to the bit of fire, to which, in spite of the oppressiveness of the weather, the chilliness of age and nervous strain had led him to set alight. He sat there for long, sunk in the blackest reverie. He was the only living creature in the great library wing which spread around and above him, the only waking creature in the whole vast pile of Murwell. The silver lamps shone with a steady melancholy light on the chequered walls of books. The silence was a silence that could be felt, and the gleaming Artemis, the tortured frowning Medusa, were hardly stiller in their frozen calm than the crouching figure of the squire. So Ellesmere was going. In a few weeks the rectory will be once more tenanted by one of those non-entities the squire had either patronised or scorned all his life. The park, the lanes, the room in which he sits, will know that spare young figure, that animated voice, no more. The outlet which had brought so much relief and stimulus to his own mental powers is closed. The friendship, on which he had unconsciously come to depend so much, is broken before it had well begun. All sorts of strange, thwarted instincts made themselves felt in the squire. The wife he had once thought to marry, the children he might have had, come to sit with ghosts with him beside the fire. He had never, like Augustine, loved to love. He had only loved to know. But none of us escapes to the last the yearnings which make us men. The squire becomes conscious that certain fibres he had thought long since dead in him had been all the while twining themselves silently around the disciple who had shown him in many respects such a filial consideration and confidence. That young man might have become to him the son of his old age, the one human being from whom, as weakness of mind and body break him down, even his indomitable spirit might have accepted the sweetness of human pity, the comfort of human help. And it is his own hand which has done most to break the nascent, slowly forming tie, he is bereft himself. With what incredible recklessness had he been acting all these months? It was the levity of his own proceeding which stared him in the face. 
His rough hand had closed on the delicate wings of a soul as a boy crushes the butterfly he pursues. As Ellesmere had stood looking back at him from the library door, the suffering which spoke in every line of that changed face had stirred a sudden troubled remorse in Roger Wendover. It was mere justice that one result of that suffering should be to leave himself forlorn. He had been thinking and writing of religion, of the history of ideas, all his life. Had he ever yet grasped the meaning of religion to the religious man? God and faith. What had these venerable ideas ever mattered to him personally, except to the subjects of the most ingenious analysis, the most delicate historical inductions? Not only sceptical to the core, but constitutionally indifferent, the squire had always found enough to make life amply worth living in the mere dissection of other men's beliefs. But to-night! The unexpected shock of feeling mingled with the terrible sense, periodically alive in him, of physical doom, seems to have stripped from the thorny soul its outer defences of mental habit. She sees once more the hideous spectacle of his father's death, his own black, half-remembered moments of warning, the teasing horror of his sister's increasing weakness of brain. Life has been, on the whole, a burden, though there has been a certain joy, no doubt, in the fierce intellectual struggle of it. And to-night it seems so nearly over. A cold presence of death creeps over the squire as he sits in the lamplit silence. His eye seems to be actually penetrating the eternal vastness which lies about our life. He feels himself old, feeble, alone. The awe, the terror which are at the root of all religions, have fallen even upon him at last. The fire burns lower. The night wears on. Outside an airless, misty moonlight lies over park and field. Hark! Was that a sound upstairs in one of those silent, empty rooms? The squire half rises, one hand on his chair, his blanched face strained, listening. Again! Is it a footstep, or simply a delusion of the ear? He rises, pushing aside the curtains into the inner library, where the lamps have almost burnt away, creeps up the wooden stair, and into the deserted upper story. Why was that door into the end room, his father's room, open? He'd seen it closed that afternoon. No one had been there since. He stepped nearer. Was that simply a gleam of moonlight on the polished floor, confused lines of shadow thrown by the vine outside, and was that sound nothing but the stirring of the rising wind of dawn against the open casement window, or— My God! The squire fled downstairs. He gained his chair again. He sat upright an instant, impressing on himself with sardonic, vindictive force some of those truisms as to the action of mind on body, of brain process on sensation, which had been part of his life's work to illustrate. The philosopher had time to realise a shuddering fellowship of weakness with his kind, to see himself as a helpless instance of an inexorable law, before he fell back in his chair, a swoon born of pitiful human terror, terror of things unseen, creeping over heart and brain. End of Book 4 Chapter 30